humility rather than pride. We're to walk in unity rather than divisiveness. We're to walk in the new self rather than the old man. We're to walk in love rather than in lust. We're to walk in light rather than darkness. We are to walk in wisdom rather than in foolishness. We are to walk in the fullness of the Spirit as opposed to being under the controlling factor of anything else. We're to walk in mutual submission to one another rather than in self-serving independence. If we are committed to do these things, then what we read today is make no mistake about it. If we are committed to doing these things, we will suffer spiritual battle. We will be attacked by the enemy in such a way that he will attempt to thwart our efforts to be and to do what God has called us to do. Jesus' earthly ministry began with his being tempted by Satan during his 40-day wandering through the wilderness. At the conclusion of Jesus' ministry, he was tempted by Satan in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is active and he is roaring through this world looking for those that he would devour. As we look back at Jesus' temptation, according to Luke, we read that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when, he had, when they had ended, then he became hungry. We're more familiar with the temptation that took place after the wilderness wandering. But it also tells us that during those 40 days, Jesus was constantly being tempted by the enemy. He undoubtedly faced many periods of temptation as he sought to fulfill the will of God and to march towards the cross and fulfill the plan of redemption. You know, there are many examples of spiritual battle that are expressed all throughout the Word of God, and we must be convinced that Satan is a real, literal, actual enemy. You know, with each decade that passes, an increasing number of evangelical Christians believe that Satan is only a representation of evil. He is a symbolic representation of evil. He is not a literal person. Now, I wonder what that means as we look at the account of Jesus, as we read the words of Paul. And when we hear what Jesus said when he said to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I want to tell you, my friend, that is not symbolism. It is a literal person who is our enemy. He is a powerful adversary and one that will attack us to keep us from celebrating what God has done for us in Christ and to keep us from pursuing the fulfillment of what God has planned for us to do as his children. The more faithful we are, the more he will attack. You know, it occurs to me that some will hear this and say, well, if that's the case, I want out. I don't want to be attacked. I want to be left alone. Can I just have Jesus as my Savior? Can I just walk with Him as a little bit of my Lord and be spared from the attack? Well, not if you're serious about doing what God has called you to do. Not if you're serious about celebrating and understanding what God has done for us. But as we think about the spiritual battle that we're in, we must remember that Satan is not omnipotent. Only God is omnipotent. He isn't more powerful than we are in the Spirit because we have the Holy Spirit in us. In our flesh, He is more powerful. But because we have been indwelt by and sealed by the Holy Spirit, 
greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Do you believe that's true? If you really believe that's true, then you will fulfill the purposes of God in your life and not give thought to how you might be attacked by our enemy. Let's look in Ephesians chapter 6 now, verses 10 through 13. And here's what God's word says to us today. Finally, a summarization of everything that Paul has said to this point. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So we're going to look at our passage of scripture here today in four different sections. Number one, we're going to look at our preparation In order to engage in spiritual battle, there is preparation that must take place. Verse 10 reads, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Number one, we see to be strong in the Lord. There's a triple play that Paul uses here in these words that deal with strength. It is to be strong in the strength of his might. To be strong means to be empowered. It is to be empowered in the Lord. Being strong in the Lord relates to his personal presence. It literally means to be made strong or to be strengthened in the Lord. We find strength in the Lord through our relationship with him, in our union with him. We have been saved, we have been sealed, we have been adult. We draw our strength for this battle in our relationship with Him. If we are going to fight a spiritual battle, it is going to require spiritual strength. We don't have any spiritual strength in ourselves, on our own, apart from what Christ has done for us. It is our union with Him, it is His provision for us, that enables us to have any strength to be strong in the Lord. Number two, to receive strength from the Lord. So to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, strength from His mighty power. We get strength from His mighty power, not our own abilities, not strength in our own effort, not strength in our own determination, but we receive power from the Lord and from the strength of His might. Now it's important to notice that this phrase here is in the passive sense, which means we are not capable of strengthening ourselves. We can only be strengthened from the Lord. It isn't the amount of strength that we receive from the Lord. It is simply the source of the strength that comes to us from the Lord. It is the power that God possesses that he makes available to us. So it is power over physical nature as we have seen in the ministry of Christ. It is power over the animal kingdom to enable them to walk into the ark two by two. No prey, no predators. It is the power over the empty tomb. It is the power from a dead spirit to a new life, a new heart that God has done for us. We see how this power has been provided to us in a previous part of the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, verses 19 to 20, it says, as Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we would see 
the power that God has made available to us. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So it is the power that has saved us. It is the power that has made us new creatures. It is the power that has enabled God to join us to himself and enables our future resurrection. It is this same power that raises Christ from the dead. And this is the power that God has made available to us in our relationship with him. Now, it's important that we recognize the distinction that this power comes from our relationship with God. It isn't something that we pray that God gives us a supernatural power to overcome. It isn't a spiritual gift that God gives us to fight the spiritual battle. It is simply the power that comes to us through our relationship with him. In this difficult battle, in this often dangerous battle, because the souls of men and the lives of men and women are at stake, we are not left alone. We are not without help because our strength comes from him and our strength is found in him. So now we see, number two, our instruction. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of of the devil. So there's three important points here that we're going to look at. Number one, God has made a provision. God has made a provision for this battle. Now, this is a figurative armor that Paul is talking about here. There is not a real live armor that we are going to go put on that is going to protect us from this spiritual battle. But this provision that God has made is his armor. It is not our own. It isn't anything that we possess. It is not anything that we can produce or find on our own. You can't go to the Christian bookstore. You can't go to Amazon and order the armor of the Lord. It comes from our relationship with him. It doesn't matter how much money we have. It doesn't matter how much education we have. It doesn't matter what our reputation is like or what our influence is. We cannot fight this battle apart from the provision that God has made in himself by giving to us this armor. And I will explore the armor in greater detail in the weeks ahead. So our relationship with him is what provides for us the ability to withstand this battle. It is the provision that God has made. Number two, we must put it on. We must put on the armor of God. It is an intentional daily choice that we make. It's like walking out of your house on a bitterly cold winter day and choosing to put on the warmest coat that you have. You must choose To put it on. Now, the exception here in this verb is that this putting on is understood to be a permanent putting on of the armor of God. Not something that we put on and take off as we see the need for or as we enter in a very difficult period of our life. But we are to have this armor on all of the time. And you know how much sense that makes. Because our relationship with God is supposed to be a constant 24-7 relationship. It's not a Sunday morning. It's not a Wednesday night. It's not a, I need to get married and I need to find somebody so God really help me in this process. It is something that we're supposed to be clothed with all the day of our life. All the time. There is a constant need to be clothed in this armor because the battle continues in our lives day after day. 
And again, the closer we get to the Lord, the more committed we are to fulfilling his purposes, the more intense this battle is going to be in our life. So it begs the question, how then do we put this armor on? It's pretty simple, actually. We put it on in daily communion with God. If you wake up and start your day, and you get up at the last minute, and you jump in the shower, and you grab something to eat, and you get in the car, and you speed to work, and you do your job, and you rush home, and you sit down to have dinner with the family, and then you kick back in your chair, and you read the paper, you watch some TV, and you've never gotten in the Word of God, and you've never humbled your heart before Him in prayer, you are not clothed in the armor. You are not in communion with God. We must be transformed by the Word of God. We must know what it is He has done for us. We must know who He truly is. We must be convinced of how we can live a life that can please Him. We must pray without ceasing. We must be in a constant attitude of prayer, asking God to help us, asking God to strengthen us, asking God to purge us, committing ourselves to pleasing Him and honoring Him and obeying Him as we should. If we will do that, if we live in a constant need for Him, and if we live in constant dependency upon Him, you will be in communion with Him and you will be clothed in the armor that God makes available to us. Number three, we can stand firm. In the provision that God has made, our instruction is that we are to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Not wavering, not retreating, certainly not compromising, but standing firm. You know, it's interesting that standing firm means that you are not advancing against the enemy. You are instead firmly entrenched in your position, unrelenting, in a posture of immovability, because you're standing in the Lord. We're standing firm in what has already been conquered on our behalf through Christ. Let me ask this question. Has Jesus conquered the power of Satan? Oh, absolutely, he has. Has Jesus conquered sin and death? Well, absolutely, he has. Can we bring anything to the table in this spiritual battle? Absolutely not. We stand in the victory that God has already prepared for us. We stand in him, and therefore we stand immovable, because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. As we look at the devil's scheme, that word scheme here means method or craft or deceit. It describes the way Satan tries to attack us. If Satan were to show up at our door unmasked as he truly is, we would be scared out of our minds. But he doesn't come at us that way, does he? He is crafty. He is deceitful. And he is always scheming to trip us up. We read in Genesis 3, at the introduction in human history of this enemy we call Satan, Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, there's a lot about this that we don't know and we don't understand. Lucifer was the highest regarded angel of all the angelic beings that God had created. Sometime after creation 
was completed, and we see the introduction of the serpent in the Garden of Eden sometime in that time span, and we have no idea how long it really is, we can rule out some things like millions of years and billions of years because we know Adam only lived to be 930. We also know that Adam and Eve gave birth to Seth. I think it was when Adam was 130 years old. We don't know how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden before Lucifer fell and how long after Lucifer fell it took for him to come into the garden to trip up man. So there's a lot about this that we don't know, but what we do know is that our enemy is crafty. He is clever, and he is very, very deceitful. An animal Silently stalking his prey. Not coming face to face, but covertly. Approaching undercover so that there's an opportune moment to pounce to capture the prey. He prefers a cunning attack instead of overtaking us by power. It's kind of like boiling a frog in a pot of water. Slowly, he erodes away to the extent that we find ourselves someplace that we never thought we would be. So we're told to put on the armor of God to withstand Satan's craftiness, his deceitfulness, his plans to trip us up. And so we can look at a couple of things from this account in Genesis to tell us something about his schemes. So when we look at Satan's schemes, first of all, we see that he creates doubt. He wants us to doubt who God is and what God has said. We see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, He said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Did God really say that? Are you sure you're not misunderstanding? Are you sure that you haven't confused that with something else? Did God really say that you shall not do? And you could see figuratively the wheels spinning in Eve's mind. Did he really say that? Because she got that secondhand information. Maybe Adam misunderstood Maybe this really isn't a bad thing for me to do. So by eroding our trust in God, by eroding the authority of God's word in our life, we begin to say to ourselves, did God really say that? Is it really going to be that big big of a deal? Why would God do that? I don't understand that. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't like that. Maybe, Maybe that's not really what God meant by that. You think about how this plays out in your own spiritual life. And I've met people all throughout my ministry that have said questions like this. How do I really know that God loves me? How do I really know that he has forgiven me? How do I really know that I've been saved from the penalty of my sin? How do I really know that I can trust God? You see, when those kinds of questions plague our walk with the Lord, you can be assured that Satan is creating doubt in our lives in such a way that we don't need God except for the big things. He really isn't trustworthy. And it becomes a very dangerous slope for us to walk on. When our trust in God isn't complete, we are open to even more of Satan's schemes. Number two, Satan provokes defiance. He encourages the disobedience to God's word. Genesis 3, 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Are you kidding me? God is just exaggerating. It's hyperbole. He doesn't really mean that. God is trying to take the fun out of your life. He's trying to exert some kind of manipulative control of your life. 
God is a liar. You're not going to die. There's not going to be a consequence. After all, this thing really isn't that big of a deal, right? You know, those things that we say like, it isn't going to hurt anybody. Nobody's going to know. It's just a little sin. Make no mistake about it. Satan is provoking our disobedience to what we know that God has said we should or we should not do. Number three, he seeks to deceive us. Not only creating doubt and provoking defiance, but he seeks to deceive us. We read in Genesis 3.5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And wouldn't it be a good thing to be like God? Wouldn't it be a good thing to know everything that God knows? You see, God is withholding something good from you. He's keeping you from your true fulfillment, the fullest expression of life that you can know. And so He deceives us into thinking that willful disobedience isn't really that big of a deal. In fact, it's not going to be a bad thing. It's really going to be a good thing for you because you're going to know more about what only God knows. And so when we choose to disobey, when we give in to this deceit, we replace the provision of God and the protection from God for the thing that God has forbidden. Number four, eventually he aims to destroy This is always Satan's attempt is to destroy something in our life. I remember years ago I read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, and in there is an analogy of how Satan works. And in this, in the Screwtape Letters, the the characters are being led to to disobey and to follow their sinful inclinations rather than to obey. And the end result is the destruction of the lives of the people that follow. And in the background, the one who is offering up the destruction is simply laughing and taking pleasure in that which was lost. And that is exactly how he works. He aims to destroy. Finishing up in Genesis 3, 7 through 8, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Their existence was never going to be the same. They were naked and unashamed, living in absolute harmony with one another, enjoying the time when God would come through the garden to fellowship with them, to be in his presence, to delight and who he was, and what he had given to them. And at the moment they disobeyed, it all changed. They were now ashamed of themselves. They were ashamed of their nakedness. And when they heard God in the garden, they ran. This is exactly what our enemy wants to do. He wants us to run from God rather than to run to God. And he will do whatever he can, whatever he has to, to trip us up in this battle. Let's take a look now at number three, our enemy. In verse 12, we read that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That word struggle means to wrestle. It's a physical confrontation. That is the analogy that we're given because wrestling was big in Paul's day. But it 
tells us a little bit about this kind of struggle. This struggling meaning to wrestle, to do hand-in-hand combat with someone. And since this is a spiritual battle, we must remember that it isn't a physical wrestling match that we're actually engaged in. It is a spiritual wrestling match that we are engaged in. So the first thing that we recognize about our enemy is, number one, people are not the enemy. Those difficult people in your life, those people that are so hard to love, that are so hard to follow, that are so hard to serve, my friend, they are not the enemy. Our struggle, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but make no mistake about it, people are tools that Satan uses. They are pawns in his game, and we have to contend with those individuals in this spiritual battle. These people are being used by him to carry out his purposes, but they are not the enemy. Hard to recognize the difference when someone's giving you the true counsel of God's word and keeping you from the wrong thing and encouraging you in the right thing if you're not in communion with God. But then you add in this dimension of a spiritual battle that other people are involved in and you can find yourselves in a real difficult position. It emphasizes how desperately we need to be in a daily communion with him. You know, even in the church, even within the family of God, Satan can use people, unintentionally use us, to interfere with God's plans and God's purposes. How could that possibly be? Are we not all saved? Are we not all indwelt by the Holy Spirit? That's true, we are. But are we all being controlled by the Holy Spirit? Even if we are controlled by the Spirit, we aren't 100% accurate all the time in what we think God may be leading us to do or leading us not to do. A great example of this can be found in the life of Peter. Jesus had explained to his followers that he must die. His end is near, and he is going to die. We read in Matthew chapter 16, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? He's chewing Jesus out is what he's doing. Saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Peter, excuse me, and he, Jesus, turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. We need to be in the Word. We need to be prayed up. We need to be with the Lord so that He can use us to further His purposes so that we cannot be unintentional pawns in a scheme of Satan's. You know, outside the church, people have been deeply deceived, perhaps even captured by him in such a way that they are antagonistic to the things of God. But we also need to be reminded that they are not our enemy. It's hard for us to recognize that, isn't it? People are not the enemy. When Jesus was on the cross dying to pay the sins of mankind. He quotes this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. How could he say that? Because they didn't recognize that they were actually killing the Son of God, the Savior of mankind. And yet Jesus says, They 
are not the enemy. So we go to number two. People are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Verse 12 continues. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, when we read throughout the Bible and we see the kinds of adjectives that are used to describe Satan, our enemy, we read things like he is the tempter, he is a murderer, he is a liar, he is our adversary, he is the deceiver and the schemer, he is the accuser, he is the ruler of the demons, he is the ruler of the world, he is the evil one, he is the prince of the power of the air. He appears as an angel of light and he roams this world seeking whom he may devour just like a lion. Here in our verses, we see a description of the spiritual forces that are under Satan's command. It is a spiritual mafia, if you will. Now, there's enormous amounts of speculation about what this hierarchy might look like. And I have to tell you, We just don't know. There's all kinds of speculation. There's all kinds of ideas. There's all kinds of theories that support educational, governmental, educational, all kinds of weird philosophies or theories about what kind of hierarchy might be here. We don't need to get caught up in the details that we can't know. What we do need to know is something about this army that Satan is in charge of. So, number one, letter A, they are spiritual beings because they are not people. These are the third third of the angels that were kicked out of heaven when Lucifer rebelled. And so these are the fixed numbers of demons that are out there who are carrying out the schemes of our enemy. They reside in the heavenly places, not in heaven with God. In the heavenly places refers to the spirit world. They are spirit beings in a spiritual place that we cannot see, we cannot get to. But it is a spiritual world and it has some influence over the lives of people. So they are spiritual beings, let it be, they are agents of evil. They're described as forces of darkness. Consistent with who Satan is. He is the prince of darkness. They seek to do the work of Satan to spread sin, to make it more prevalent, to make it more appealing, to make it more enticing. They appeal to our sinful flesh. They will draw people to those things that are unholy and despicable in the sight of God. Even those of us who have been saved by the Lord, our enemy will come in to deceive us and to trick us and to lead us and to disobeying the things that we know God has prohibited us from doing. Letter C, they oppose God and his purposes. Described as forces of wickedness, desiring to thwart everything that promotes not only the person of God, but the purposes of God. Now, we do see these things at work in our world. We do see them being lived out in our culture, but it doesn't mean that those people are the spiritual forces. It just means that they are being influenced by those spiritual forces. We can see the spiritual forces and work in our government. Every time they remove a, a statue of the Ten Commandments or they remove some other kind of biblical historical 
statue. It is another way to remove God from the public square. We see them in the education system where they have elevated man to such an point, to such an extent that prayer is no longer allowed in the school. Bibles are not supposed to be in the school. All kinds of rules and restriction, restrictions and legislation that dictates what can take place in the public square. Now, these are not the forces of evil, but these are examples of the people who are being influenced by these forces of wickedness. Even though these people are not the enemy, they have been deeply influenced by these satanic forces, and we see them lived out prevalently in our culture and throughout our world. They seek to negate the idea that there is a God, that man has a need for God, that man can come to know this God through the God-man, the Son of God, Jesus himself. So in this seemingly overwhelming battle, as we think about what's taking place all around the world, number four, we see the advantage that we have, what God has prepared, what God has given to us in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So this is a little bit of a repeat and a little bit of a preview of what we're going to look at in the, in the next couple of weeks. Number one, we have protection in this battle. God has provided us with his armor. Number two, we can resist. We can resist. We don't have to give in. We have the ability to experience victory in the ways that we are tempted and the hardships that we face. There is Victory because we are already victorious through Christ. He has conquered on our behalf. And because we are in him, we can resist. Now it talks about in this evil day. The evil day here is the presence and the power of sin. The evil day probably should not be considered a single day that would be connected eschatologically to the end times or to the day of judgment but it probably refers to the evil age that we live in, the the days after the curse of the fall where sin is now prevalent and powerful. Our world is dominated by the power and the presence of sin. We see the same idea in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, where Paul says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Day and time are not evil in and of themselves, but these days are filled with evil because Satan is the ruler of this world and there is a powerful presence of sin all around us and Satan is actively opposing the rule of God. Number three, our advantage is we can stand unmoved. Verse 13, and having done everything... To stand firm. What is that everything? Well, that everything is that communion thing we talked about already. It is being in the presence of God on a daily basis. It is being in his word. It is praying without ceasing. It is obeying without question. It is walking in dependence. It is being filled continually being controlled by the Holy Spirit. After we have done everything that we know to do to clothe ourselves in the armor of God by developing this communion with Him, we are told to simply stand and to stand firm. 
Are you aware of the spiritual battle that takes place in your life every day? If you're oblivious to it, you are no threat to Satan at all. The closer we walk with the Lord, the more intentionally he attacks. We don't need to fear the attack because God has made a provision for us. As we look in the weeks ahead about the spiritual provision that God has made for our lives, we need to ask ourselves this question. Are we willing to do battle to see God's plans and purposes fulfilled in our life? Are we willing to do battle to make a difference in the lives of other people? Or do we just want to look at the cross and say, thank you, I really want to be left alone at this point. You know, we would never say that out loud, would we? We would never articulate words like that. But when we say this whole thing about pursuing God and loving God and living God for God and serving God and dying to myself, you know, that's, that's way more than I bargained for. Well, what we have is a very cheap grace. And I believe that if that's our perspective, we need to really question ourselves about what the cross means to us. Well, make no mistake about it, we as the people of God, we as the church of God, who are on mission to serve him and to be used by him, we will do battle. But let's remember, we are not the enemy. Satan is our enemy. That's why we must walk in unity. Not in foolishness, but in wisdom. Not in independence, but subjection to one another. And then we will see God do a work that can only be explained by him. Would you pray with me? Father, we would admit that this whole idea of a spiritual battle is difficult for us to grasp. And because we can't physically see it, we're often ignorant of the reality of its presence in our lives. But God, I pray that as we seek to honor you and please you, that we would be undeterred by the attack that we will face. Father, how I thank you that we don't stand in our own strength trying to figure out a way to overwhelm this incredibly powerful being, but we stand secure in you. We derive our strength from you. And you have given us a provision that enables us to not only resist, but to stand secure in who you are, what you've done for us through Christ. God, I know that as we individually and as a church corporately seek to do all that we can to be a blessing back to you, we will face the battle. God, I pray that we would draw strength from you and strength from one another and stand shoulder to shoulder, unrelenting in our pursuit of fulfilling your call in our life. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.